Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. We'll be a week into the new lockdown in England when this podcast comes out and I hope everyone is doing okay and managing to still see your horses and get a bit of riding in where it's possible to do that. I'm thrilled that our podcast guest this week is British dressage legend Carl Hester, who will be talking to Horse and Hounds Polly Bryan about helmets versus top hats, social media, and why he's excited about his new Grand Prix ride on Vogue. The attitude that he has of being such a worker and so hot and up for his job, you just feel you can do something with it, ready to be in the medal zones. Our news team will join me to talk about the latest on COVID-19 and Brexit, as well as a story which has been creating a stir on the Horse and Hound website this week. Finally, vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine has some timely advice on colic. Impaction colics is definitely something that we start to see a lot more of during the autumn and winter months, mainly because there's been a sudden change in management. So pull on your britches and let's get going. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound. I'm extremely excited about this week's very special guest. This man is a true maestro of the sport, having done more for dressage in Britain than perhaps anybody else over the past decade and beyond. He was behind the mighty combination of Charlotte Dujardin and Vallegro, and is also a multi-medalist and five-time Olympian in his own right. I'm talking, of course, about the brilliant Carl Hester, and I'm thrilled that he's able to join us on the Horse and Hound podcast today. Hi, Carl. How are you? Hello, Polly. Yeah, how lovely. Thank you very much. It's great to be able to talk to you. I'm good. All's good here at the yard. Um, you know, we've got a, we've got 20 horses in at the moment, so uh, there's plenty of work to do. And um, <laughs> yeah, just really, really enjoying spending time with them and hoping that there'll be some actually I am hoping there will be some competitions I don't normally hope there'll be competitions (laughs) (laughs) I am hoping there'll be some now I know you've enjoyed spending quite a bit of time at home this year haven't you I have yeah and and you know I first of all would like to say how lucky I am to be in that position of being able to do that I know lots of people um you know with horses haven't been even been even to get to see them wherever they might be if they've been at livery or something Mm. um so I have been very fortunate in that I live at home the horses are at home I've been able to walk out there every day and see them and um it's been very different because normally um you you know I ride Charlotte and I would ride four mornings a week uh together and the rest of the time is is spent normally either teaching or traveling or we're competing um, and of course, this year, with, 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 with what's gone on, I've actually been able to spend some afternoons um, out there on the yard, you know, and just being with the horses mm. in another capacity, which has been fascinating to actually, and helpful, I think, to really know their personalities inside and out. Yeah, that's really interesting. You did have a very successful outing to Kiso a few weeks ago, riding on Vogue, didn't you? And he produced some super scores at his first international show. Vogue is owned by Charlotte Dujardin, for anyone who doesn't know, and he was competed at the levels by Charlotte. But Carl, how did you come to take over the ride on him this year? Um, good question. Um, well, I think, you know, it's nice that Charlotte and I have had this reversal. Um, you know, I have obviously known Vogue, uh, all of his life as well. And he is an incredible horse. Charlotte has always believed in him. Um, he certainly wasn't a straightforward horse. He very 
he's jazz and he's very spooky and he's very hot. Uh, and he was, I know Charlotte found him a bit of a nightmare at times to try and teach things to because he was so, um, so clever that it, it almost, he turned everything into being difficult instead of easy. But he, he was another one that she took up through the levels. And I mean, he's a very big horse. He is, um, you know, as big as Nip Tuck was. And, you know, we have, as you know, we're very fortunate at the minute to have um, several Grand Prix horses here. And um, he'd had some time off last year and we didn't really have room for him this year. And the winter was, uh, you know, upon us. And Charlotte said, look, he, he needs to come in, he's out. Um, and she said, would you like to take him over? And, uh, and I said, well, I'll give it a go and see how I go. And I had sat on him before. He's a truly incredible horse to sit on. I mean, in his own right, he's um, just a real worker and comfortable and hot and everything I like uh, with that little bit of quirkiness. <laughs> and um, so I just said, well, I'll get him fit and uh, see how I got on. So that was back in February. And, um, you know, just played. I t I've taken things very, very slowly with him. Mm. Uh, and he definitely is a horse that he needed time to, you know, really grow into himself and grow into what he's doing. You know, Grand Prix, you know, could, uh, in his eyes, could freak him out a little bit because he has so much power and energy and it would sometimes just be too much for him. Uh, so I've just taken him slowly and tried to get him to do an easy Grand Prix. That was my aim for this year and um and not get him too fit either so he does so he's not fitter than me as it were uh, he's he's an unusual horse you know here he is he's 11 years old so he's got a long career ahead of him hopefully mm. and he is another one of those horses that you know we i ride him from the field he he lives out with two of my others and uh, they live in a little pack of three up on the hill and they come in in Lovely. the morning and I write it, and he still has this. I mean, I dread to think how much energy he would have if he was living in a stable. <laughs> oh, gosh. He's much better doing what he does. So he is clipped out, but he's rugged out, and he lives out in the field. And, and, uh, and I'm really enjoying him and getting, you know, getting to know him. And as you say, Kiso was uh, a very tentative outing. I had taken him to Hartbury and had a run through, but Kiso was a big step for him and for me mm. and uh, he was great I mean anyone that would have seen it was seeing the Grand Prix you know I didn't dare ask too much he didn't give too much um, and we just tentatively rode around and then I thought this is this is what a proper international horse is like he needs mm. to come out twice a day so that he gets ridden and he knows where he is. You don't do movements in the morning. I just stretch him and relax him. And then in the evening, I brought him out for the second day for the special. And uh, I put my foot on the pedal and he responded fantastically. So I know it's in there. This is another 80% Grand Prix horse in the making. Um, and um, I yeah, can't wait to get to that point where I can ride for those sorts of points, really. Yeah, oh, it's so, so exciting to have him up and coming. He is actually the star of our In the Spotlight feature in this week's issue of the magazine. And what I found most fascinating while writing that feature was hearing that although he looks so big and impressive and powerful when he's actually in the arena, underneath that, he's a bit of a scaredy cat, isn't he? Alan, your wonderful groom, described him as a tiny person in a great big body which I thought was a lovely way of putting it. It's a very good way of describing him, and it mm. seems to be a bit of a theme in my life because <laughs> Nip Tuck was the same. Uh, and I had a nightmare ride on him this morning in the outdoor school. It was like <laughs> he had never been in it. Oh, 
Um, and I don't know whether that one of the dogs had a chew and that was up on the top hand, you know, corner. He saw that. <laughs> then he saw something in the hedge. Then somebody was power hosing. I mean, this is all outside the arena, of course, but I mean, <laughs> he sees everything. And, you know, the first five minutes, you literally end up stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, because he just literally can't focus on anything except what's going on. Uh, oh, and gosh. he is a little bit like that. But having said mm-hmm. that, when I took him to the college, you know, when it came down to it, he buckled down and got on with it. Mm. So um, he, he he's quite funny and he can be cold backed as well. And anybody that would have seen me out the back of the college. It was hilarious. It was raining. You know, it was 7.30 at night, pouring with rain. Uh, and every time I put my foot in the stirrup to get on him, he put his back up and went to do something and I kept jumping off. And then I kept making poor Lucy, who was looking after I was like, trot him up and down. So we were trotting him up and down in the mud with his saddle banging and the stirrups banging uh, until I actually had the courage to actually land in the saddle and take off. And he, he was fine when I did that. But I suppose it's all part of getting to know, you know, their little their little bits and pieces, really. Of course, it is getting to know them by going out to these shows. How how do you actually approach riding a horse like Neptark and Vogue when they have as much talent, but but it's harder to maybe bring out their full potential in the ring? How do you do that? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the, the thing that you mentioned is their talent. So that makes you persevere. And, um, you know, there are many ways around these things uh being an international grand prix horse which you know, hopefully they you know obviously nip tuck was very successful for all those years and vogue mm. hopefully will become successful um I, I i just feel that you know they get a better go when they're doing internationals because of course you arrive at a show a few days early you don't have to put them under the pressure of doing a test on the day you arrive or often the following day it can be a gradual process of introducing them to the sights and sounds of international competitions um, before you are. So if you think that normally, you know, even for an amateur rider or a novice horse or a medium horse, you know, you know, you put it on the lorry, you drive to a show and you have to then expect it to compete at the, at the level that you're schooling at normally. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's quite a lot to ask at the lower levels. Well, it's a huge ask at Grand Prix if the horse has a lot of talent, but he also has a little bit of personality and quirk and... Uh, and might be a spooky horse or a hot horse. Um, So it's just really working out what's best for the horse, not exhausting it physically to try and get the test out of it, because it's all about the mental relaxation. So, you know, I mean, here, you know, try and have a training system, you know, a lot of stretching work of of relaxation. It's not always about the movements, just doing that sort of thing in a snaffle. So they associate that with, you know, the relaxation hacking out in all sorts of weathers and you know i mean my girls here will tell you know will all all say it doesn't matter whether it's pouring with rain or windy you know the horses have to go out on hacking days and they do of course you know we don't wimp out of any of that (laughs) Uh, you know so they have to be used to going in in any weathers as well and generally you know i mean this year's been brilliant because of course we've been able to once we could get going uh you know we would load the horses up because there were still no real shows but we would load the horses up and i would go and hire arenas um locally um and set up philip at hartbury was fantastic and uh, the gallops at Summerhouse have been hugely helpful for us as well in leaving arenas up for us with all the flowers there and everything so we could actually school school a grand prix which you never normally would get this opportunity to do um, so we've had a brilliant year of, of schooling uh, at, at some of these local events and I think it's really paid off, uh, certainly in the way the horses are starting to go. So what is it about Vogue that makes you think that he's so special? 
I, I just know from my feeling, I just know that, you know, when you get such a great feeling off a horse, even for, for people that watch it and say, oh, he's too tense or he's too short in the neck or, you know, or that walk wasn't very good or your extended trot wasn't great and everything. I know it's all in there and I think yeah. that's the most important thing. It do, of course, it's not all going to happen in one go for me in an arena uh, yet. So, but I know at, at the times I hit all of the, the right buttons at Grand Prix, certainly when I'm schooling at home, I can, everything there is feeling, you know, like an eight, nine or 10. Um, and the attitude that he has of being such a worker and so hot and up for his job, um, and, you know, the fact like today, you know, it was like riding a five-year-old that was, you know, he'd just been clipped or something. And, you know, he was so up for it and looking at everything and snorting like a baby. And it makes you laugh. So I think because he has all of that, you know, attitude and, you know, joy for life, you just feel you can do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, talking of medals and teams and things, I know that you're very pleased about the news that we received a couple of weeks ago now that we will be having a European Dressage Championships to look forward to next year, yeah. as well as, yeah. fingers crossed, the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Do you think Britain is strong enough at the moment to field two successful teams? Absolutely we are. I mean, this year, the, these monthly um, shows we've been organising, um, to, to ride in front of our five-star judges have been purely to get our scores up and to have chances of riding tests, which we would not otherwise have had, in situations where you can re-school if you want to, if it doesn't go particularly well, let's say, in your first go, um, feedback from the judges. Um, and from what I've seen this year, you know, we have certainly nearing 10 combinations um, and bear in mind that wasn't including Richard Davison and his lovely horse Spencer and Supernova because they've kept theirs at home this year, ready to bring out next year. Um, and so without those two, which we know it can be certainly 72 pluses um, and higher, um, and yet we still had like seven, eight combinations well over those scores um, showing this year. So definitely uh, we, would, we would be able to field two very strong teams uh, for oh. next year, which is what's so exciting. So exciting. And it's amazing actually that we're sitting here today discussing the possibility of two, you know, potentially medal winning British dressage teams in 2021, when actually it wasn't really all that long ago that any dressage medal seemed like a bit of a pipe dream. It's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've had, as you know, we've had, um, you know, moments of glory, you know, going back to that, um, you know, I, well, Jenny obviously won a medal. Of course. Um, and Emil won a medal and the first team medal, you know, back in Lipica, uh, yes. back in, I think it was 93. So there were blips, you know, of, of like, oh, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And then, of course, nothing stayed as glue. And then, of course, back in 2009, um, you know, once once we had all that group of horses starting to come through, you know, we've been able to maintain this, you know, very high standard yeah. uh, and been joined, you know, one person, you know, the trouble is in the past, we had a brilliant rider at a time or a brilliant horse at a time. Uh, and now suddenly we've been starting to know that we need better horses to train. We've been able to train better horses. And uh, so that's why we have a, a much larger group in this country now that are 
well-trained and, and ready to be in the medal zones. Yes, of course. I mean, looking back to 2009 when we had those European Championships at Windsor, I mean, that, that was a real turning point, wasn't it, for, for British oh, dressage and for you? What a competition that was. <laughs> and what a night that was, uh, you know, under the floodlights and, and Windsor Castle lit up and a sold-out, packed, uh, you, you know, stadium. It was incredible to ride in that. I had never, and I mean, I'd been riding on teams already then 20 years, but you just, I just couldn't, you know, just couldn't get over how, what, what it actually felt like in, in, a, in a home situation and everything. And it was just beautiful. It was a great time. You know, Total Ass appeared there as well. You know, dressage was booming. Popularity was booming. Uh, and we were right there in the middle of it, you know, taking our first silver medal. So it was just an incredible feeling. And, you know, it was one of, it's one of my best memories, to be honest, looking back at that night. And, oh, we just sat in the lorry. I mean, I think we drank till four o'clock in the morning and <laughs> we just celebrated and celebrated and celebrated. It was just, it was blissful. You know, it, it, yeah. it actually meant so much. And, you know, for me at that time, I hadn't won a medal. And, um, you know, so that's when I took my first one. And I just thought, if it never happens again, who cares? <laughs> this is it. So, yeah, it was a great, great time back in 2009. Of course. And then it only, only got better over the next few years. <laughs> well, of course, you know, then we went on to Kentucky the following year and Silver and, and Mr. Horace, of course, then was at his, he was the leader of the team then. Uh, and then, and then 2011, Utopia led the team. In 2012, Allegro led the team. You know, it swapped around. Uh, and we mustn't forget these other great horses. Of course, we always think about Allegro being... Uh, you, you know, the best horse in the world, which he was. And, you know, it's going to be hard to ever be beaten. But, you know, there were other great horses at the time supporting Vallegro after 2012. Of course. Uh, you know, through all of those other medals then in Denmark 2013. And Khan, you know, that was another amazing experience back at the World Games again. And it, it, just, seemed to, it just seemed to become normal um, for us to, to do well, which, of course, we mustn't rest on that. We've got to keep going and uh, get these, you know, we would have, as you know, sadly, last year, we would have had the silver again at the Europeans. Um, and but to think that we were fourth with a 74%, a 76 and a 77. I mean, it's amazing. That's unheard of. That used to be a gold medal score. Yeah. So we just missed out anyway. And that was without Charlotte. So it does show that, you know, there is the, the depth there. Absolutely. And as we said, it's it's so exciting going into next year. And I imagine if someone had told you at the 2008 Olympics that by the next games, Britain would be on top of the podium. And of course, doing so well beyond that as well, you probably wouldn't have believed them. I wouldn't have even looked at them. <laughs> I'd have just looked the other way and thought, where are you from? Um, yeah, it was it was unthinkable. You're right. It happened. I suppose it looks like it happened very fast. But you know, we were getting better and, you know, we were training better and we were having better horses in this country. So, mm. you know, I, it isn't a surprise really, but, you know, that enthusiasm that started in 2009 was what kept us going, I think. Yeah. And and talking of change, there's been a lot of debate going on in the dressage world recently surrounding top hats and whether Grand Prix riders should have the choice to wear a top hat or a helmet. I know that you choose to wear a helmet both at home and at shows, but where do you come down on this issue of, of having the choice between the two? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's my, in my situation, this is how I feel. I am a role model. 
I have been wearing a crash hat now for f- four years, mm. and I wear one at home every day. I mean, nobody here doesn't wear a crash hat. It's safety first. Yeah. Um, you know, I do feel, and I feel that, you know, I, in that respect, and Charlotte the same, we are role models for the kids out there, for the, you know, juniors, young riders. Um, and our hats are, I think, stylish. They're comfortable. <laughs> I'm used to it now. You know, I was lucky I had the chance to ride in a top hat in my day. Yeah. But I look at those pictures now and I think, weird um you know a little bit like it would as we all know and there's always the comparison to wearing a seatbelt. i mean yeah. if you don't put it on you feel weird yeah um because it's just such a normal reaction to reach for it um i am slightly also sort of feeling like well if you're an adult and you're you know i mean let's say i mean you know i'm in my 50s let's say one of my contemporaries said well i'm going to wear my top hat that's up to them i mean right. i would just say quite simply i wouldn't if i was you but if you're going to do that I can't stop them doing it. Um, I think what's important is showing the next generation, uh, you know, of people coming up. You just need to be safe. You need to, you know, I know, let's face it, if we spoke to anybody who'd had an injury or you know someone that's had an injury or a, or a doctor or a surgeon, I mean, they would just think we're completely mad, um, you know, if we didn't wear one. But, you know, I kind of like left it up to other adults' choices. Uh, you know, it's not, I'm not in the position to say you can't. Um, but of course I'm in a position to influence those that would be thinking, you know, should I, or shouldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a really heartfelt topic for a lot of people. And well, it's caused, I mean, you know, as I've seen over the internet, the last, you know, the last while since this debate has been raging on, I mean, people get pretty vicious about it. Mm. Um, you know, and it doesn't help anybody. You know, I think let's face it, it's not going to, eventually we will all be in crash hats. Um, you know, it's going to happen at some point and, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly obvious, I think the way it's going to go, but I mean, people are pretty rude and, you know, savage, should I say. And some of the things I've seen written about people just because, you know, their view is that they would like to wear a top hat or something. And, you know, I mean, it's got to be a, a, you know, a serious debate because it's about people's lives. Uh, but I don't think it needs to get to the point of some of the posts that I've read, certainly. Yeah, it certainly doesn't need to get nasty. I know we've we've had well, not just dressage, but all equestrian sport has had uh, more than more than I think we'd like of that kind of thing online over the last few years, haven't we? Yeah, and you know, well, I've talked about this before, as you know, Polly. I mean, you know, if you come from an era where you didn't have social media, I, I think you just sort of swanned along, thinking, you know, if you didn't offend people, um, that they probably liked you and you liked them, and. Um, you know, why would somebody who'd never met you write something, you know, nasty about you on the internet? I mean, what would be the point? And then, of course, we moved into an era of social media and suddenly you're like, hell, there's actually, <laughs> you know, a group of people out there who just make it their mission to be nasty. They don't think about you as a person. They just, you know, spout off the things they want to say. And it does boil down to the fact that, you know, I know half of those people wouldn't say it to my face or your face or whichever rider's face. You know, they wouldn't actually be brave enough to actually say that. I'm sure they'll be, if they're hearing me now, they'll be like, yes, I would. Well, come and say it. Um, but it, it's, it's, yeah, I, I just don't want people, you know, especially young riders and things, from what I've seen growing up, having to read some of the things um, 
that are written out there because I mean you know you just think why would I ever want to compete again I mean where did the enjoyment go when you spend your whole time worried about who's videoing you because they're going to show it to some so-called expert to rip you apart and put it in front of other people for them all to have a pop at um, yeah. you know I don't, I don't I don't like that for younger people I mean obviously I'm old enough and brave enough to stand up for myself right? <laughs> you've got to accept your actions haven't you and if you say something or you write something or you know, you ride a way that somebody else doesn't like, then, you know, you, you've got to have a chance to defend yourself. But it's, it's, a, it's not the easiest, I would say, situations um, to actually go out there and, and, and be, you be yourself because you're always yeah. worried about what other people are going to say. Exactly. And of course, we want to keep, you know, keep people coming into the sport and, and enjoying the sport as well. It's obviously such an important factor. Well, that's your point. You know, I mean, mm. I've always enjoyed competing. Uh, you know, you know, up until the last sort of like few years, um, where I just think the whole time, you know, I wonder what's going to be said about this performance. I wonder what's going to be said about that performance. Did someone take a picture of my horse not looking at its best? Did someone photograph someone else when they're not looking their best and put it up there and say, this is how they ride? You know, it's, yeah, you do think about those sort of things, but you've got to, you know, you've got to trust your training system. You've got to be fair to the horse. You've got to, you know, it's got to be a cor correct way of riding and you've got to stick with that and, you know, and enjoy that and, and comp co competing uh, and competitions can be huge fun and of they course. should be you know that's what we're all aiming for um, and you, you know you've got to put that behind you and go out there and enjoy it and and love every minute of it because you make friends out there it's where you see your friends uh, and I would hate people to be put off just because of you know a very small group of of, of 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 people that don't don't want you to enjoy it seemingly yeah exactly it is all about the enjoyment of it at the end of the day and very very wise words from you carl as normal it's been a huge pleasure having you on the horse and hound podcast today thank you so much for joining us and best of luck to you looking ahead to 2021 hopefully we'll see you out and about again soon with the gorgeous vogue yeah well it's coming around very quickly isn't it i i can't um i can't believe how fast this year's gone uh, let's hope next year does bring a, a chance to get back to some some competing and medals and yeah there's some exciting plans afoot so let's hope we can all uh, all reach them definitely thank you so much carl that's a pleasure thanks very much polly I'm joined today by two of my colleagues at Horse and Hound, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And our news writer, Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. Hello. What have you guys been up to? I know no one can do much at all with mm -hmm. lockdown, but um, Eleanor, what's happening with you? Uh, well, not much in the last few days, obviously, but I did manage, I think, like half the world to get stuff in last week at the last minute. I had a show on Tuesday and a, and a lesson on Wednesday uh, to keep my girls happy for a few weeks. Oh, and what about you, Lucy? Yes, nothing really. <laughs> Lockdown, I've been enjoying, enjoying hacking out and walking the dogs and just enjoying. It's been quite nice weather up here with us. So uh, yeah, just slowing down and getting outdoors while, while we can and enjoying, enjoying the things we're allowed to. Yeah, no, totally. I've just been, uh, just been uh, working, running, and walking. To be honest, are pretty much the only things I've been uh, been doing since the lockdown came in. But uh, we'll struggle on through. And of course, we're going to talk about COVID today. We always talk about COVID. Um, and Eleanor, you've been looking at a survey that SEIB insurance brokers conducted, which was about how equestrian businesses have been hit by coronavirus. 
I think we'd expect that most businesses have suffered a loss, but what were the findings and, and how have people been cutting costs to try to mitigate those losses? Yeah, so this was a, a survey carried out by SCIB insurance brokers and um, almost more fitting now because although it was on the effects of the first lockdown, now of course we've got another one. Um, and of the ones they surveyed, nearly 70%, this is riding schools, livery yards and some other yards, nearly 70% were still operating with either limited or changed services than you know, normal before the first lockdown. Um, and over 95% said their turnover was down on pre-lockdown levels. So that was 70% sort of in the period before the start of this lockdown were down compared to, to, to before the first lockdown. Yeah. Um, that's right. And what have people been doing to try and sort of cut their costs during this period? Um, well, nearly half of the, the yard surveyed turned their horses out during the first lockdown. Some of them sold horses. Um, other people were saying things like reduced my wages, worked hard and tightened my belt. So we knew it was a tough time. And people may be using furlough and some of that government support as well? Yep, so um, almost half of the respondents had applied for business grants, uh, about a quarter for the government-backed help, um, but about a third hadn't applied for anything. Okay. And has there been any upside to the difficult times? Were there any positives in the survey? Yeah, so about 30% of the respondents did say that interest in whatever service it was they provided had increased since the first lockdown. Um, there are some thoughts about whether people are trying to get their parents are trying to get their children into the countryside more, you know, and then we spoke to a couple of riding schools who have got huge waiting lists and can't literally physically couldn't fit enough clients in that were interested. So there does seem to be a positive, hopefully, for the future. Mm, that is really interesting. So obviously, some some businesses are, are struggling and we, we mustn't underestimate that. But there are some who are finding that people are really keen to, to get outside and, and do something new, do something healthy, as and when they're allowed to. So maybe there is an opportunity there for equestrianism. I hope so. Mm, thank you, Eleanor. Now, Lucy, I feel quite sorry for you because you always <laughs> seem to be the person who gets the terrible task of writing about Brexit. And I just think wading through Brexit paperwork is my idea of hell. But you're always up for it. Bless you. Um, we're talking again this week about taking horses abroad after that 1st of January deadline. What is the latest on this thorny topic? So the big thing really is that it's getting quite close and things are going to change from the 1st of January. So we're talking weeks really, as opposed to months now, it's sort of seven weeks away. And in the past week, DEFRA have helpfully put on a webinar trying to, to set out all the steps people are going to have to to do and to jump through, whether you're a commercial transporter, whether you're a competition rider, whether you're taking a horse abroad for other reasons as a private person is there's going to be change for everyone so they had a sort of 90 minute seminar which gives you an, an idea of, of of just how much there was to get through in that but they were they were very much you know doing their best and trying to answer the questions that that were coming up at them uh also in the last week we've had the national audit office has released its a, a report on the uk borders preparedness for the end of the transition period which is the 31st of december and we have heard there is likely to be significant disruption at the border from 1st of January. So this is something if if you're moving horses for whatever reason, sort of the early part of next year, this is really something that you and I'm sure everyone that is thinking about doing that is getting on top of very much now because there are there are a lot of things to, to know, to to find out, to ask questions about and to do everything you can now to be as prepared as you possibly can be. And I mean, there's still quite a lot of questions unanswered at government as well. So I've been trying to unpick quite a lot of that. 
Mm. And when I was looking at your story, I saw there was some talk about horses being classed as registered or unregistered in the context of, of moving horses across borders after this change. Can you just explain to us sort of what those terms mean in this context? Yeah, so horses are classed as either registered or unregistered. It's quite complicated. And essentially what it comes down to is there are different steps for horses who are considered registered and horses who are considered unregistered to take when moving them between the EU and the UK. And that is all set out on, on the DEFRA website. I won't go into all the details now. As I said, it was 30 slides and 90, 90 minutes long to the, all the ins and outs of that. But it is really important to realise that, you know, to understand whether the horse you're moving is classed as registered or unregistered. Now, at the moment, the only horses that are considered registered are ones uh, with an FEI passport, with FEI wrap. So that'd be com most international competition horses who are competing above a certain level, either in their nation of residency or any level abroad, and those registered with the Hurling and Polo Association. So at the moment, we are still waiting for stud books to be approved, which would mean that all horses on those recognised stud books would be considered registered. So at the moment, DEFRA is advising anyone transporting horses from the UK to the EU that on the basis that UK stud books will not be recognised from the 1st of January. So sorry if that is all quite a lot to take in. Uh, effectively, what it means is in simple terms, there are different steps for horses who are considered registered to those who are considered unregistered. There's extra steps for unregistered horses. So I'd say my advice would be get onto the DEFRA website now, get understanding what those extra steps are so that you can be as prepared as you possibly can be um, with everything else going on. And there seemed to be a suggestion that if you had an unregistered horse, which needed paperwork signed off by a vet on, on the day of departure, that vet might have to come out in the middle of the night if you were going to leave at sort of 3am. That's just something that struck me in the story as, as hugely impractical, a question that's maybe still to be answered. Absolutely. That's certainly what I took away from that webinar is that is still a question that seems to need to be answered as at the moment registered horses can have their paperwork done and signed by an official vet 24 hours before. But we're hearing the advice is that unregistered horses have to have that done on the day. And of course, in real terms, as we all know, you know, departures happen all the time and sort of all through the night. So I think that is definitely a question that needs to be answered. And hopefully it won't involve calling vets out in the middle of the night. But it, I mean, that just gives you an idea of the sort of real logistical, practical terms of, of things that people are wanting answers on and that DEFRA were taking away to to get clarity on and for example another was that the Calais as we know is going to be a border control post uh, for transporting horses into and out of the EU and they're going to have an appointment system and of course that then led to a lot of questions surrounding you know how's that going to work is it going to be an appointment per horse per lorry is it going to be 24 hours because yeah so there's quite a few questions there that I know DEFRA were taking away to answer and um, yeah, hopefully we'll get some clarity soon as, as the deadline really is, is fast approaching. Well, thank you, Lucy. And thank you for keeping on top of this, this story for us. And we'll look out for those questions, hopefully being answered in the, the weeks rather than months ahead. Eleanor, we're coming back to you. And we've had an incredible week on our website with massive attention on one particular story, just huge traffic going to that. What has happened here? What's the story about? 
Um, it's a really sad one. It was uh, I spoke to an equine welfare officer of a charity in Wales about a pony she was alerted to, um, and she went to see it and she described it as a walking skeleton and you know very poor. And then when she checked its passport, she found out he was forty five, and it turned out that the, the owners who had him had only had not had him long at all. And they they didn't really 100% know what they were doing. They had the best intentions and they'd rugged him and they were feeding him. But they just didn't really know. And he was put down and she she has really used that as a as a sort of an example to say to people you know if you've got a horse who it's so hard obviously to put a horse down especially if they are seemingly okay but she's saying come on be brave do the right thing rather than pass a horse because someone had passed that horse on at the age of 45 without knowing what his future would be Oh, that's terrible and, and so sad that a horse of, of that age could, could move homes at that age. It's just a really, really awful story. But this can be such a hard decision for owners. And, and one of the messages that we want to get across in covering this is that there is support out there for owners in both making the decision to have a horse put down and then going through that, that, the, the steps of that process. Where can people turn for support in these situations, Eleanor? Um, almost all the equine welfare charities. Uh, we've spoken to World Horse Welfare and the British Horse Society. And actually, World Horse Welfare told us that they, the BHS and the Blue Cross, have joined together in this initiative called With You Every Step of the Way, which sort of points out all the help that each of the charities provides. Um, you can go on the charity's websites for leaflets and information on how to measure quality of life sort of objectively. And then um, you can always ring up for advice. They'll always be happy to speak to you for advice. The BHS has got a team called Friends at the End, which is the aim is to make sure that no one goes through, you know, everyone acknowledges how hard and how upsetting a decision and a time it is for horse owners. Um, but there is help there and you don't have to be on your own. Hmm. Well, it's something that all horse owners will probably have to face at some stage. And I would also suggest that people can go back and listen to our podcast on the 13th of August, where vet Ricky Farr gave some really good practical advice, which just told you in, in quite simple language what would happen when a horse is put down. And I think that that's useful for people to, to know and understand. Thank you, Eleanor. It's, a, as we say, a really, really tricky one for people to face, but you do have to do the right thing by our, our horses and ponies when they get to that stage. And we're going to finish off just on a completely different note. Um, diversity is back in the spotlight this week, and there's been an award given to Black equestrian business owner Sandra Murphy. Fill us in on that, Eleanor. Yeah, so Sandra's the founder and managing director of Equidiet and she won the Consumer and Luxury Senior Leader winner at the Black British Business Awards last week. And she really hopes that this will um, allow her to act as a role model and an inspiration for other BAME people um, to inspire them into the industry. And uh, she's also the founder of the BAME Equine and Rural Activities Focus Group, which has the same aim to inspire BAME people into all aspects of the industry, which is so important, riding, working and everything. Hmm. So great news there for Sandra and for her role as a sort of ambassador for, for this underrepresented community in the horse world. Thank you, Eleanor. And thank you to Lucy too for joining us this week. Here's Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine with some advice on coping with colic. 
if you know any vets out there, they usually kind of dread this kind of uh, time of the year because quite often the out-of-hours calls are starting to get a little bit common when it comes to colics. Uh, impaction colics is definitely something that we start to see a lot more of during the autumn and winter months, mainly because there's been a sudden change in management. So you're bringing a horse in, starting to stable it a little bit more because the weather's getting really grotty out there. And invariably, your horse has been walking around all the time during the summer. And now we're not doing a lot of walk, but we're still getting a reasonable amount of forage and or concentrate feeds that sometimes results in there becoming a bit of a blockage. Um, the, the equine gut is, is quite a marvel of engineering, to be honest, but it does have some flaws in it. Um, there are two almost 180 degree bends within the horse's gut. And one of the biggest ones is right at the back uh, called the pelvic flexure. And this is the prime location where we tend to find a lot of impaction colics actually uh, uh, sort of build themselves up. So most people, if they've had horses long enough, they, they know what the typical symptoms of a colic is. Everyone anticipates seeing this horse thrashing around on the ground, looking really uncomfortable. Uh, they're pouring at the ground. They're looking around at their flanks, up and down like a bit of a yo-yo, um, sometimes dramatically throwing themselves against walls. Well, actually with impaction colics, you tend to find it's a little bit of the opposite. And that quite often these horses quite present a little bit duller over a day or two. Yes, they will invariably get down. You'll quite often see some horses lay down on their side and groan and then sit back up in sternal, lay back down and then get back up, pick at hay a little bit. But it's those additional little kind of changes in behavior that you've got to really keep an eye out for. You know your horse. So if it starts doing something odd and that lets someone know. Also paying particular attention, most people realize how much poo is coming out of their horse in any one day so if they're stabled overnight if you notice over a day or two that you're getting less out your horse is starting to go a bit quieter on you that's the prime time to call the vet out and actually to get to, to actually have a little look so any kind of mild colic symptoms vet out straight away what's your vet going to do well they're going to give it a good thorough clinical exam so they're going to do heart rate they're going to do the respiratory rate make sure the temperature is okay and then start to listen to the gut sounds and normally when you listen to gut sounds in a horse they just tinkle away they're rumbling on in the background you hear something on all four quadrants on the uppers and lowers and you don't have any issues quite often with some impactions those gut sounds tend to get a lot quieter as they get a lot quieter, you know things are starting to back up a little bit. So what we normally do is quite often we'll sedate horse. Um, so don't be surprised if if your vet does come out and sedate them to perform a rectal exam. It, it looks and sounds absolutely horrific, but actually it gives you a massive amount of information. And from our point of view, we're able to diagnose things like impactions quite quickly. So for those of you that probably will never get the opportunity, when your hand is inside the middle of a horse, it's really odd. In a normal horse, you can swing your arm around in there like you're swinging a cat around. There's plenty of room. However, when you put your hand into a horse that has an impaction colic, you start to feel these really kind of doughy masses. So you will feel intestines with the ingester in them, but quite often that intestine will move away from your hand and feel really soft and squidgy. With these impactions, they, they really start to feel quite firm to the point of where you can almost leave thumb or handprints 
in the side of the intestinal wall with the ingester on the other side and quite often these are found almost on the left hand side sort of if you look at the clock face they're kind of around about eight nine o'clock kind of mark so you'll see your vet quite often virtually all the way up into their shoulder because you need to get your hand in quite a way to feel these but they're very very indicative so as soon as we felt that and we know that there's an impaction going on that horse is obviously going to require additional fluids and or laxatives, quite often done by passing a tube up their nose, passed down into their stomach, and then the fluids are passed down there. Now, most impactions, um, given a, a degree of movement, uh, you reduce their feeding and fluids and or laxatives will completely remove themselves on their own. Um, some of them, however, can take two or three days to actually get on top of. So, don't be surprised again if your vet goes, well, I'm going to have to come back tomorrow or I'm going to touch base with you tomorrow to make sure that we're passing a normal amount of feces. Because if we're not, you know that that impaction is still there. And I think we've all had those cases where you've gone out for two, three days on the run, you've retubed them, you've put fluids down them and then all of a sudden everything's fine. A very, very small number of impactions end up requiring hospitalization or surgery. Um, so the key again is to look out for the signs nice and early. Are they going quiet? Are they laying down a little bit more than normal? And how much poo do you have in that stable? Thank you, Ricky. That's all we've got time for this week. But on the next episode, Ricky will be back to talk about that perennial winter problem, mud fever. Our guest will be the five-star event rider, Sarah Bullimore. And of course, we'll also catch up on the week's news. Don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word if you think your friends need some extra entertainment to see them through lockdown. See you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.